you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church. I, once I thought I'll be the only one in the church today looking at the weather outside, but thank God for every one of you. I just want to welcome you, and I want you to know that I am so glad to be in the house of God. How about you? Amen. Amen. Praise God, brother. Praise God. Yes. We are on a journey through the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 11, and you are looking at verses 45 to 57 with the very last portion of that. I do hope uh, you remember this text we started examining two Sundays ago. I gave a title to this section as the Pharisee in me. The Pharisee in me. And I told you I saw at least four markers that would identify the Pharisee in me. And we looked at, uh, of the four, we looked at two of them. And we'll continue with the other two today. Just to refresh our minds, let me give you the context so that you have an understanding. Jesus was in Bethany. It's about four kilometers east of Jerusalem. And Lazarus was brought back to life by the Lord. And when the Lord performed one of the four messianic miracles, instead of being convinced of the identity of the Messiah, the Jews stirred up the worst reaction of all. And it hardened their resolve to go all out to destroy Jesus. It set in motion a chain of events that would lead to the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, his trial, his crucifixion, eventually his death. This leaves us wondering, us who are listening to this message, why should such a great miracle of love and life by the Lord Jesus bring forth such an adverse reaction of hatred and death against him. Well, we looked at it last time. I told you the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And we looked at Jeremiah. He writes it so beautifully. The human heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Just the irony is that even after 2,000 years, the condition of our hearts still remain the same. Even today, sin that dwells in our hearts makes us capable of doing the very same thing to Jesus. The pharisaical behavior pops up occasionally amongst the believers, amongst every one of us here, ourselves, and that is what we are looking at in this text. We are looking at the markers that would reveal the Pharisee within me. The first two we looked at last time, and just to refresh your mind, I'll bring it up on the screen. We said the two markers would be then when one impedes God's work, someone wants to stop God's work. That's the Pharisee in you that causes you to do that. And I told you that we must keep on keeping on because the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Number two is that when one hinders others' faith, when you become a stumbling block, 
That is the Pharisee in you that is making you, causing you to do that. And I reminded you that we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. So let's look at the other two today. So I'm going to dive straight into verse number 48. We're looking at the latter part of 48. Let me read that to you. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. That is what we looked at last time. And the second part says in verse 48, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What do you take from this church? The chief priests and the Pharisees are collectively saying, fellows, listen, if all men were to believe in Jesus, then Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They're going to come and do something. They're going to take away our nation and our place. So you ask the question, why should that happen if, if everyone believes in it? What has that got to do with Romans? Let's read on, verse 49 to 50. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us, in other words, it is better for us, that's what it means, that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. What do you take from this church? Now Caiaphas, being the high priest, said, fellows, you know nothing at all. That means you are not getting it properly. He says that, let me tell you, it's better to get rid of Jesus, to kill Jesus, than to let our whole nation perish. That's what he's saying. So you ask, pastor, why should they fear of the Romans doing such a thing. Listen, church, the Jews genuinely believed that because of the popularity of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus would seize the opportunity to take up political leadership. They were genuinely, they believed and they were concerned about that. If that happens, then Romans would interpret this as a disloyal act that they would crush the entire Jewish nation because of that. So listen, they completely misunderstood Jesus here because Jesus never had any political ambitions in his first advent. Underline the word first advent. If you recall, the response of Jesus soon after he fed the 5,000, I'll bring it up on the screen for you, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, meaning the feeding the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So they spotted Jesus as the prophet who is to come into the world. And look at the second part of it, verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So church, think about this. If Jesus really wanted to be the king, he needn't have withdrawn. He could have stayed on and be made the king. Later on, we are going to study in John chapter 18, verse 36. The Pilate is asking a question whether he was the king of the Jews, and this is the response Jesus gave. My kingdom is not of this world. 
if it were my servant would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So for the Jewish council, the fear of national destruction by the Romans gave them the most convincing reason why Jesus has to die. But we know for sure, reading the whole text, we know for sure that this fear was a fabrication of their wild imagination. That's all it is. Because Jesus would never, ever do that. So if you really examine the heart of those in the Jewish council, should the Romans come after us and destroy this nation and establish authority over us, what will happen to us, the leaders? That was their worry. That was their fear. We lose what? What will they lose? They lose all their pomp and position and power and prestige amongst the people. And we will be reduced to nobody in this community. Right now we are the Sanhedrin. We are the ruling body of this nation. We'll be crushed to nobody. They feel that their foundation on which they stand is shaky. That they will lose ground that they have built over the years and they would be made no one in that community. Because they were anchored on this foundation of power, position and prestige. That's the fear. That's the fear, church. But they tell the people a different reason why Jesus must die. They're giving completely different, different reason. Our nation will be destroyed if Jesus does not die. This reason would justify their move to crucify an innocent man. They can say it, say that it is necessary, it's a necessary sacrifice, and that is the lesser of the two evils. We would rather have him crucify and save our nation. In other words, save my position. And this reason alone can make the council appear to be completely selfless and blameless. And it is an easy sell and people will buy into it. And they think this is done with having people's welfare in mind. See the effect of it as soon as they said that. The next verse, verse 53. From that day on, when they made that convincing argument, when they presented to the people, from that day on, they plotted. Meaning they took counsel together to put him to death. They got the people onto their side. They sold their ideas. The scheme worked well for them. So what did we learn from this church? Powerful lesson for us. The Jews relied on their worldly security of the nation of Israel, of the land that was given by the Lord, of the positions in the society, of the power in the society, of the popularity in the society, in order for them to have and enjoy and hold on to all these perks and privileges, they have to do what? Crucify Jesus. They have to kill Jesus. So they somehow convince the people 
they went ahead and crucified Christ. And they thought that they have saved the nation of Israel from Roman occupation. And they continued to enjoy their perks. Every one of them. But is it really true? Is it really true? Did they really save the nation of Israel? I just want you to come along with me, church. The history tells us what happened. Just 40 years after Jesus was crucified, in AD 70, their hopes, their dreams, their positions, their power, their privileges came tumbling down when Rome invaded and destroyed the nation. Jerusalem was leveled to the ground. According to Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, nearly 1.1 million Jews were killed in that invasion. Look at the picture. This is just an artist's view of this. 1.1 million Jews were killed. And those Jews who survived this terrible holocaust were scattered and sold into slavery throughout the world. They remained in exile from their homeland for 18 centuries. A small remnant of Jewish people remained in the land. What do we learn from this church? We learned that they were never anchored on solid ground. That's what you're learning here. Their perception of security was false. What they relied on was temporal. The irony was that they did not know that they were on shaky grounds. Let me tell you this, church. We do the same, every one of us. When the Pharisee in me causes me to rely on the secular, the worldly nature pops up frequently in us. We think we are safe, but we are not. Apostle Paul has a beautiful way of presenting this to us, confronting us rather. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote this. And he called, he writing to the believers, and he says this, Brothers, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. This is to the believers. But as people who are still what? Worldly. Mere infants in Christ. Church, sadly, 2,000 years later, the same condition exists. Now, Paul identifies some believers as worldly Christians who are like infants in spiritual development. Now, you are going to charge me and ask me, Pastor, how can you say that I am worldly? How can you say that? Let me tell you. Hear me out, church. I'm not saying every one of you. Your compass for living is the ways of the world, not the way of Christ. You're, you are friends with Jesus, but not true followers. Jesus is your Savior, but Jesus is not your Lord. The Bible is not your instruction book for life. You stay tuned to the message of the culture, not the message of the Word. You profess your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but you still cling on to your old ways of living. You do not renew your minds with the scriptures. 
You like the Christian flavor, but you have carnal mind. Your life is not about preparing for the kingdom of God. It is to secure a position in the kingdom of this world. Your investment is not in his vineyard. Your investment is in your banks, in your houses, in your cars, in your clothing, in your travels, in parties. Your security and success is found and measured in the mammon in what you own. Though you profess and love the word, the worship, and the work of the Lord, the desire for mammon trumps the priority over time with God. Time to study the word of God. Time to pray. Time to serve. Time to give for his kingdom. If it is for a vacation, a cruise, or a party, you will find the time and you will find the dime to tithe, to attend church, to support missions. You will have a thousand and one excuses. The Pharisee in you has scaled your spiritual eyes to see the things of God. The Lord has a warning for you. The Lord himself he wants in Mark chapter 4, listen to, listen how he addresses your heart condition. The cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Church, this is how the Lord sees us. Sees you, sees me. When our security is on the secular. Look at this picture. I was trying to figure out what picture I can come up with. That's the best I can do. I just wanted to picture this as your life. The Pharisee in you causes you to rely on these anchors. This is the, the, the table is your life. You are seated on the throne of this life. You are operating your own life. You are in control. There are anchors. You need four legs to support it. And for me, I see number one could be the mammon, the wealth. I, my anchor is on the dollars I have in the bank. In the properties that I own. In the vehicles that I have. My anchor is number two could be the families. My family, my heritage, my children, and my wife. Or your next anchor could be your pride. What I picture, what picture I portray to others. Or your anchor can be your position in the society. I need to rise above. Church, before I came to know the Lord... The pride and the position was supreme priority for me in my life. For me, I thought I knew, the, I knew everything. That's how engineers think. We think we know it all. The bottom line is we know nothing, next to nothing. You realize it when you get older. I thought I knew it all. I can figure things out. My pride, my position... I can operate my life. Christ is, but we are still believers. Christ is somewhere in my life. 
within the framework. Yeah, I am a believer. And my life, the security is very temporal. There's a temporal security because all this will come to an end on the day I am called home. Yes or no, church? Of course, yes. Remember, there is no U-Haul attached to the hearse. You ain't taking anything with you. All you need is a six foot if you want to be buried, or maybe not even a foot if you want to be cremated. Think of the famous and rich people who ever lived, who sought after these securities in life. Many politicians you can think of, I'm not judging anybody, but think of Hitler. Think of Alexander the Great. Think of Gaddafi. Think of the names. They relied on this security, the anchors, but that was temporal. But here are the four anchors that every believer should rest on, if you are a true believer. And let me bring up another picture here. Christ must be the center. Christ is seated on the throne of your life. He operates and you cooperate with him. You don't operate. You just cooperate with him. And here are the four anchors I just want us to uh, look at one at a time. Number one is the presence of God. Everybody say the word presence of God. Presence of God. The scripture says very clearly, God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its roar, waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I will not be afraid because God is my refuge and strength. Amen? Amen. Let the Romans come. But God is my refuge and strength. Think about this, church. When he is with you, who can be against you? Think about this. When you accept and experience God's presence, we get the strength and hope through the tough times. In His presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David says, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because He is with me. He is with me. We become courageous for we are not alone, church. We can sail through the stormy waters. Here's the promise that God gives to the children of Israel. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Imagine the creator of the universe looking at you and saying, you are mine. Wow. Sometimes our parents may disown us. Our children might disown us. Our spouses might disown us. But God, the creator of the universe, says, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I am with you. I am with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you, for I am the Lord your God. So the first anchor, church, is His presence. The second anchor that we should rely on is the promises of God. Everybody say promises of God. Promises of God. His promises are yes and amen in Christ. I want you to see this promise that God gave to Jacob. It touched me so, 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 so deeply. Please listen to this. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Listen, church. 
the Lord says what? And will bring you back to this land. God, God is giving a promise. For I will not leave you until when? I have done what I have promised. So this of course refers to the Jacob's dreams where God spoke to him and said that he is going to be with Jacob. Wherever Jacob goes, he will go far. Yet God will bring him back to this land again. And God seals it by saying he won't leave Jacob until everything he promised has come to pass. This is God's promise. Wow. I don't know about it. I'm getting goosebumps as I prepare this message and speak to you. That shows the great faithfulness of God because when he swears by his own name, there is none higher, and so it cannot be affected by human will. Think about this, church. We can sail through any deepest, darkest forest in this life. He promises to bring us back to the land of the living, to the new Jerusalem. What a comfort it is. Have you thought about that? I can face so many difficulties in this life. The Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The world may cast you out, but the Lord will not. So the second anchor must be your, his promises. The third one is the providence of God. Everybody say providence of God. You, we know this passage of scripture very well, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good of those who love the Lord. Right? Love God to those who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things. The good, bad, and the ugly. That's what it means. God is never out of control. Satan can do his worst in our life. We may not know it. But we know that God allows things for a reason that his plan is good at the end. We may not understand, church. I still remember when I met with the near-fatal accident about so many, or almost 42 years ago. I prayed, I prayed, God never healed my leg. I didn't understand that at all. Why didn't you heal me, God? I was angry at God. I was angry at my parents. I was angry everywhere. But then I realized all things work out for good, for those who love the Lord. When I placed my love, I realized God brought this for a purpose in my life so he can draw me closer to him. So that this engineering big head can be crushed and I go on my knees and surrender myself to the Lord and say, God, here am I. Here am I. Naked as I am. Church, some of us are in the middle of the story. That is why we get anxious and worried. But he knows the end of the story. Amen? He knows the end of the story. He is taking us to New Jerusalem. That is the end. Imagine that, no matter what trials you may face today. It must be frustrating for Satan, no matter what he finds, he finds that his plans are thwarted and some, something good is going to happen to every child of God. What a comfort it can be. So three anchors we looked at, and the fourth one we are going to look at is the performance of God. Everybody say performance of God. 
performance of God. Now, look at this passage of Christ, uh, passage here, Psalm 57, verse 2. I will cry out to God most high, who, to God who performs all things for me. He performs all things for me. He is the performer. I am the performance. He performs. I don't. That's why I said he operates and I just cooperate with him. This takes a lot of pressure off me, church. Instead of focusing on what we need to do to perform effectively, just to keep from messing up, we can focus on what God is doing in my life. God is performing for us. We simply stay open to God. We accept all that the performer is doing for us. We rejoice that we are God's image and likeness. The image, look at your image, image does what the original does, isn't it? The image will move when you move. We are the image of God. His ways are not our ways, says the Lord. In our little mind, in our little brain, we think we are smart, we think in certain ways, but His ways are not our ways. But here's the scripture that will encourage you. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful to those who keep the demands of the covenant. Amen? Psalm 45, verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are, are, are loving and faithful to those who keep the demands of the covenant. Psalm 25, 10, sorry. So the fourth anchor that we have is the performance of God. So when you stand on these four anchors, Christ is seated on the throne, you ask now, where am I in, this, in my life? Here, church, look at this. We are hidden in Him. We are hidden in Him. There's a beautiful passage of Scripture. It says that for you died in Colossians 3.3 and your life is hidden with Christ. God sees, when God looks at you, He looks at the righteousness of Jesus in you. So church, when we have these four anchors on which we stand, Christ is seated on the throne of our lives and we are hidden in Him, we are forever safe in the arms of Jesus. Forever and ever and ever. This is eternal security. It's not temporal. It is not the security that the Pharisees had, which came plummeting down when the Romans invaded in AD 70. Our security is in Christ. You know, uh, during our pre-service prayer, Anthony was bringing up a passage from Ephesians chapter 1, just before verse, verse uh, 15. In verse 14, it gives us the assurance here. Look at this, please. Verse 13 says, in, in Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. It's about salvation. The gospel of your salvation, in whom in also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And verse 14 who is the guarantee of our inheritance until when? The redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of God, of His glory. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. So church, we looked at three markers. Two we looked at last time. The third marker we were looking at here is when we anchor on the secular. The Pharisee in me is the one that causes you to anchor in the secular. We need to be really anchored on the presence, the promises, the providence, and the performance of God. Let's move on to verse 51. 
51, it starts with this, Now this he, Caiaphas, did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation alone, but also, come along with me, that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What do you take from this church? As you look at this passage, in his prophetic utterance, not said on his own authority though, Caiaphas says this, that one of the outcomes of Christ's death is that through that, he would gather in one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's what he's saying here. The children of God scattered abroad from a Jewish context would be the Jewish, the Jews of the diaspora who would be gathered together in the kingdom of God. But we are studying the book of Gospel of John and we know who the children of God are very clearly. We know that the children of God are those in John chapter 1 verse 12, those who receive the incarnate word and believe in his name are the children of God. That includes you and me, that includes the Gentiles. So we are talking about Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of God. So for the plan of Jesus to come to pass, what should be our role? We need to evangelize church. We need to reach out to the people. That's what we have been called to do. But the Pharisee in me would prevent me from being engaged in such exercise. So the fourth marker would be when we are inactive in evangelism. So the question that I want to ask you, church, is that why is that we are not involved in evangelism? Why? The Pharisee in me would place it in such a way, some obstacles in our lives, it will prevent us from evangelizing. The first reason why we don't evangelize is because lack of gospel knowledge. Here's a challenge to every one of you, those who are here and those who are watching at home, and those who think that you know the gospel. How many times have you heard the gospel in sermon, in teaching, from the books, and in conversations? Yet many of us struggle. This is the truth to articulate the truths of the gospel in a simple, coherent, intelligent way. If I ask you right now, could you share the essential message of the gospel in 60 seconds, how many of you think, don't slip your hands up, how many of you can do that? I bet you can't. So here's an exercise for you. Go home, write down the gospel. Write down the gospel, how you would say, tell to somebody in a very, maybe in one, one liner, one sentence. So one of the reasons why we don't evangelize is lack of gospel knowledge. The second reason why we don't evangelize, the Pharisee in me might cause me, is lack of prayer. We don't give much time to praying for evangelistic opportunities, church for divine aid in witnessing to our friends and fellow employees. Let me ask you, who are you praying for salvation? Whom are you burdened about salvation? Who are you reaching out to or befriending intentionally to expose the gospel? Let me put it this way so that you understand the gravity of it. Let's say you just heard 
that your dad had suffered a major heart attack and he's been wheeled into the hospital for surgery. Or let's say that you just heard that your child is diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and a few weeks to live. Let me pause there for a minute. Let this statement sink in properly. If that is reality in your life today, what would you do? Won't you mobilize a prayer vigil? Won't you call every pastor that you know, every person in the church, and asking them to intercede? Church not having Christ is worse than that. Is much worse than that. Because that leads to eternal condemnation. A heart attack, it can be repaired by, by grace of God. It can be repaired, the person can be brought back to life. Even cancer may or may not be healed and the person can be brought back to life. But that's all temporal. We are talking about eternal. We are talking about eternal. Shouldn't you be praying for your loved ones? Shouldn't you be burdened for your loved ones? So the Pharisee in you causes that lack of prayer. The third thing that the Pharisee in you do that stops you from evangelism is that it will cause you a lack of confidence, a fear component. What will the others think of me if I talk about Christ? What will the family think of me if I talk about Christ? I will be disliked, I will be laughed at, I will be mocked. I might lose my job, or, or what if they stop inviting me for the social events? Because I am a Bible freak. What if I talking about Christ make me an outcast in my neighborhood? Is this your fear, church? The fear can be a stumbling block for evangelism. The fourth one for the evangelism, which is lack of compassion. We lack compassion for the lost. We have long forgotten what it was like to live without hope, lost and apart from Christ. We rarely consider that those who do not obey Christ will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. If I love somebody, I church, I told you this before, I'll say it again because I want you to grasp it. When my mother was a, she was a truly a, a child of God, she was growing up, she is the one who instilled faith in me and, and, and the ministry desires everything, but then one thing that she did not do is obey in the waters of baptism. I was so much burdened, I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed with so much compassion, this is my mother, I want her to obey in the waters of baptism. And she did at a tender age of 77 in Canada, and I was there witnessing it. Why? Because I had the compassion, I was praying, crying out for her, because I want her to have everything that the Lord has called us to do. If you really care for the other person that you love, if your love is genuine, you will lead them to Christ. That's what you'll do. You will want them to obey what the commandments of Christ if their love is genuine. We might say we care, but we do nothing about it. We talk about evangelism, but we are not moved to do something. Look at Paul's burden, please, church. 
he writes to the Romans, For I wish that I myself... Uh, yes. Sorry, this is a different verse. I, word, word. I thought I had... Yes, yeah, sorry. There we go. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ. Apostle Paul is saying, I wish I were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. When Jesus approached Jerusalem, what did he do? He wept. He wept looking at Jerusalem. Dr. Luke says he approached Jerusalem when he saw the city, began to weep. He said, I wish you had known today what would bring you peace. When was the last time you wept for an unsaved friend? When was the last time you sacrificed your time and dime to share the gospel with someone? Lost people are a low priority for us. When was the last time you invited someone to the church? Even to your home to share, the, share Christ. Church, don't miss this opportunity. Because you'll never get it again and again. So as I conclude this message, there are four things that we looked at. Which are the markers of the pharisaical Christian. When we impede the work of God. When we are a stumbling block. When we hinder others' faith. When we anchor on the secular when we are inactive in evangelism. I know this message would make you and I comfortable, uncomfortable. While you may be disappointed to realize that there is a lot of Pharisee in me, you must take comfort, church, in whom Jesus ate with. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He came to seek and save that is lost. He ate with the Pharisees, and yes, even some of them came to experience the power of the gospel. It is comforting to know that God's gift of grace and forgiveness and unconditional love is also a gift that He extends to the Pharisee in me. So before we partake in this Holy Communion this, this morning, I'm going to ask all of you to rise for a moment, please, because I want to pray with you. I want to ask you the question here. We have looked at four different markers. I'm sure that different periods of time we can identify with these markers in our own lives. But as I said, the Lord came to seek and to save that is lost. And if you truly repent today and say, God, yes, there are times. I'm talking to believers Yes, I have allowed the Pharisee in me to pop up at occasionally. And I have stopped the work of God. I have been a stumbling block for someone else. I have anchored on the secular. I have failed to evangelize. God, here I am. Break me and mold me into the person you want me to be. Remove this Pharisee in me. May that be our prayer now. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us, that we can gather together in this church as we have been through and seen the behavior of these Pharisees. And we can certainly identify the little Pharisee in me that occasionally pops up.
There are times, oh God, we are guilty that we were the cause to stop the work of God. We have given reasons why we won't be involved in the work of God. We have been reluctant to take on responsibilities. And there have been times that we have hindered others' faith by being a stumbling block, by being a poor testimony. Father, there are times that we have anchored on the secular, in our positions, in our power, in our families, in our wealth. Father, we have been inactive in evangelism because we never had, we didn't know how to present the gospel. We never prayed for the lost. We never had compassion for the lost. And we were fearful of our, of our position in the community. Here we are, God. We admit that we have allowed the Pharisee in us to take charge equationally. And we plead with you in the name of Jesus that you'll remove this Pharisee in me, from me completely, a God. Make me the believer that you want me to be. I commit every one of us into your precious hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.